Hello, my name is Robbie Ventura, and I am your host of the Velocity Cycling Podcast. Today, my guest is Dr. Alan Lim. Dr. Lim is one of the most respected minds in the world of endurance sports. He works with many of the best endurance athletes in the world, including Olympic gold medalist Gwen Jorgensen. Alan founded Scratch Labs and is considered one of the world's leading experts on endurance sports performance. I am lucky to call Alan a friend, and I have learned a great deal from him over the years. He will be on many, many more podcasts to come. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Alan Lim, entitled, How Good Can You Get? Hello, my name is Robbie Ventura, and I am your host here at the Velocity Cycling Podcast, where our one goal is to get you to fast, faster. There is no one way to have great cycling performance. What works for some of us may not work for others. We really want to expose you to some of the greatest minds in sports performance, and hopefully we can try to figure out what works best for you to meet your goals and to meet your genetic potential. We're going to do one job and we're going to try to do it the best we can, and that is get you to fast, faster. Hello and welcome to the Velocity Cycling Podcast, and we have a great show for you today. We're going to answer a question that if you're a coach um, or you're an exercise scientist, you have heard many, many times before. And if you're an athlete, I will promise you, you've thought about this or asked your coach this question. And that is this, how good can I get? And secondly, how quickly can I get there, right? Everybody wants to know where their genetic potential lies. And this is a very difficult question. There's a lot of considerations here. And I had to bring in one of the wisest exercise scientists I have ever met. One of the, a person that I consult with on a regular basis when I get a question or I have a challenge with an athlete or with an idea, I call him up. I always say I'm putting a quarter in and I get incredibly great advice from one of the wisest people I know. And that is Dr. Alan Lim. Uh, he started Scratch Labs. He's done some cookbooks with Bijou. He's worked with many, many endurance athletes, uh, world champions, Olympic champions, and not just cyclists, runners and triathletes as well. And I just can't say enough great things about Dr. Alan Lim. And I'm so excited he's here to help answer the question, how good can I get? Dr. Lim, thanks for being here. Super excited to have you. You get this question a lot? I get this question all the time, Robbie. Thank you very much for having me. And I just want to uh, take my hat off to you for a quick sec and say you've always been my role model for great coaching. You know, the enthusiasm, the spirit, the motivation, the inspiration that you bring to all the athletes you work with, especially to me, you know, that's the X factor, man. And I think that when you ask the question, how good can I get? I think this is why we're so interested in sport. I think this is why we're so interested in challenging ourselves because there is no clear answer. This is the age old nurture versus nature. And so I like to frame this question. I like to think about this question by asking, how do I get better, right? And for me, for any athlete I've worked with on any level, it's always been this idea that better is about progress, not perfection, right? Absolutely. It's, it's, it's getting the athletes to think not about how to absolutely maximize themselves because frankly, that's never going to happen, right? That's a quest that we all have. And to tell you the honest to God truth, Alan, sometimes when people ask me that question, I say, be careful about getting as good as you absolutely can get. Because I will promise you, 
there's a downside. There's a flip side to that coin. Yeah, there's definitely a dark side to um, going to extremes. And we certainly understand that athletic performance is fraught with extremism. It's fraught with pushing yourself to uh, levels that, you know, you're basically, you're, you're flying close to the sun and those wax wings can melt, right? <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a razor's edge. And so, you know, I think that not only is the question, how good can I get um, one that I think really inspires us, but it's also one that we have to be careful about uh, because there's a big, big, you know, distinction between health and performance. And sometimes the best performances in the world are by no means healthy. I hear you. And, and I think as, as you stated earlier, people, uh, people come to me, people want to be coached because they want to get better. They want to improve. And I think the process of getting better is so, it feels so good. It creates so much confidence that that is where the focus should be. Not on the absolute finish line, but that process of continuing to improve. And in our sport, we're so lucky. Endurance sports has so many levers to pull that this is, a, this, this is something that we can do into our 70s and 80s. We can see improvement. Um, I mean, obviously, at the absolute highest level, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, sometimes we see a little bit of decay as, as our physiology starts to decay, but so much can be made up of skill sets and tactics and pacing and all these elements that we'll talk about that the quest to improve, I think, is something that we pick the sport, endurance sports, that we really have a very, very long runway. So let's talk about some of those things. And let's start with when an athlete comes in and says this, the first thing we have to look at is, is the past, I'm guessing, right? That's right. You got to look at the athletic history. You've got to look at their parents. You got to look at a lot of different factors that might give you some indication about what their, um, you know, kind of current and future potential might be. It's definitely, you know, sticking your 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 finger up in the wind and and, and trying to get a sense of things. Um, but yeah, a lot of ways to get better. And what tends to inform how we get better in the future is what our athletic history um, is in the past, right? Um, so yeah, a lot of different factors, right? I mean, are you, uh, uh, just beginning out? Have you had some sort of athletic history? What sport did you play? I know Robbie, you played hockey, right? Before you yep. got into cycling. Um, yes. that was your foundation, right? Yep. And, and I think that's an interesting thing because if, if kids, I think there's a lot of studies that back this up. If your parents were athletes, you're three times or successful athletes. You're three times more likely to be a successful athlete if your parents were successful athletes. So let's start with our parents and the importance that they play. And I know genetically they play a big role, but not just genetically. I think the exposure to sports as a youngster, if your parents are athletes, happens a lot more. You get a lot more exposure to sports and you get, it's the modeling. I mean, my father was an athlete. I watched him do things. He was a successful athlete. He was good at what he did. He was a bike racer. He was a runner and he was a hockey player. And having that as a role model, you know, inspired me to to want to take sport to another level. So not from the genetic side, we can talk about Finney, we can talk about Vanderpool in a second, but just from the pure exposure to sport and what that has taught me, I think plays a big role. Yeah, I think you're really correct. I think, Robbie, you know, I'm not a parent, but, you know, I think that you're definitely a role model for parenting in, in, in my eyes. And I think that you would agree that the hardest thing about being a parent is not what you tell your kids to do or what you um, you know, 
want them to do. It's what you do yourself. Your example probably defines so much more of your kid's behavior and what their interests are than any other factor, right? So you just being you has this profound effect on your kids, no matter what your intentions are. For sure. And, and not just the, the parents, but their exposure on the playground. I mean, you taught me something about the blacktop effect. Talk a little bit about that as it relates to becoming a good athlete and what your potential is once you get to be a little bit older. Yeah. When you're talking about nurture nature, you can never really tease out the social factors that influence us and that motivate us. And there is a phenomenon called the blacktop effect where when very young kids playing recess right? Find themselves being able to outrun their friends, or they happen to be better at handball or kickball or whatever it is, they get positively reinforced by that, right? They either get positively reinforced by their parents, by their teachers, by their other classmates, and that reinforces their desire to continue to pursue those athletic events, which then also continues to nurture whatever nature got them there, right? And that's something called the blacktop effect. It's super interesting. The negative of the blacktop effect is that if you aren't, say, coordinated or you happen to be on a, you know, blacktop where, you know, it's maybe not so endurance oriented, but maybe it's more hand-eye coordination, your talent may not actually come through and you could socially be um, kind of pushed away from sport because you're not the kid who's chosen first, Right. So there's some really uh, kind of crazy things that happen at a very, very young age that dictate uh, the opportunities that we have, but also whether or not we get reinforced to want to participate. And yeah, and those skills, I mean, it, when you think about endurance sports, Alan, starting those at a young age is important. It's not, it's not everything, but I think coordination-based sports, like I played hockey, um, I was a baseball player, and I developed really good eye-hand coordination at a very young age. I think I developed control of, of, of my body at a very young age. And I think it really helped me explore an element of cycling that a lot of people who are becoming professional cyclists didn't have the exposure to. I mean, a lot of times endurance athletes aren't all that great at these explosive sports and these explosive athletes aren't all that great at these endurance sports early on, like you talked about, but I was lucky enough, I think to, to have that skill set, to have that toughness that really helped carry me over some of the, some of the, um, challenges I had on the VO2 side or the lactic threshold side. And I think some of those skills that I developed playing hockey and baseball really helped me um, become a better cyclist in, in a roundabout way. And whenever I get an athlete, like a hockey player that comes in, that, that's, hey, I, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit older now. I'm 45 years old. I want to do an Ironman or I want to start riding my bike. I'm a, I'm a co- collegiate hockey player. I get excited to get those people in the lab. I get excited about their potential because those guys understand how to work hard. They understand how to train. They understand how to suffer a little bit as well. And they have that moxie and that savvy that it takes to be a really good bike rider that is really difficult to teach later in life. So give me a hockey player, give me a sport guy like that. And I think, you know, the potential or how good can I get really goes up. Yeah, for sure. You know, there are a lot of advantages uh, socially, culturally, mindset-wise, in terms of starting out young. I mean, obviously, there are uh, components of our neuromuscular control that develop only when we're kids, right? And so you're never going to be a champion ping pong player unless you start young. That being said, 
it's not necessarily about specificity at the, that age. You know, the the idea that you know you need to develop athletes like the Tiger Woods model, I think, is actually a pretty false narrative. You want to basically expose kids to as many different things as possible, so that their neural network kind of creates a larger overall foundation. Uh, that being said, you know what's really interesting about being a young athlete is I think that you learn how to get into that flow state faster. You learn how to focus on the activity that you're doing and you, I think can more quickly um, kind of turn it on, if you will. Right. So there is a big mindset um, component, a big focus component that goes well beyond just whatever your physiological attributes are otherwise. Right. And I think there's another element too, Al. And I think when you when when you get outside and you ride your bicycle by yourself, um, it's one thing. But put somebody in a pack of riders that started cycling at the age of 45 or 50, and that's a pretty scary environment. There's a lot of people yeah. out there. There's some risk. There's some there's there's definitely some nerves about riding close to somebody. If you have a person with a background in in, in athletics and especially kind of eye hand coordination and and that a sport that takes a little bit of nerve, they're going to be so much more likely to get into that draft and to take yeah. those chances and to work on that competitive component as well. Because learning to be competitive, learning to how to adjust to your situation constantly is, is, is an athletic behavior that I think is very difficult to master at an older age. And I think some of the skills of, of, of pacing yourself, some of the skills of conserving your energy and, and saving a little bit all happen through sport. And I think it's a huge leg up if you had those exposures before you came into, uh, into cycling. Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's no doubt about it, right? There's no doubt about it. You're just different. And, you know, I will also say this on the flip side, when you're talking about health issues there, it's, there's no doubt that being a physically active kid sets you up better for your, the rest of your life. Even if you decide never to be an athlete, uh, likewise, you know, childhood obesity is really, really a difficult issue because once you get that increased number of fat cells before puberty, they lock in after puberty and you might be forever, you know, kind of hosed um, in terms of the, the, the battles that you've got to fight to, to, to not be um, obese or heavy, right? So these are really actually both athletic as well as um, important health factors. For sure. Talk a little bit about um, the genetic component of having parents that are gifted. I mean, we, you know, you've worked with Taylor Finney quite a bit, um, two of the most genetically gifted parents. Um, they have this unbelievable child um, in, in Taylor, but they also had, you know, I think they had, Taylor has a sister as well. Talk Kelsey, about yeah. the impact of Connie and Davis on, on their athletic development. Well, first and foremost, I think it's a good example of, um, you know, kids wanting to do what their parents do as opposed to what their parents tell them to do. Because I think that initially, uh, knowing the family, Connie and Davis were not excited or encouraging of Taylor to be a bike racer or even Kelsey to be a bike racer. I think it was the last thing that they wanted because they understood how difficult that life was. But 
you know, Taylor also modeled that behavior and saw his parents riding all the time and was on a bicycle at a really young age. He also played, you know, uh, a lot of soccer when he was younger, um, especially growing up in Italy. So he's had other athletic exposure, right? Um, you know, his sister Kelsey was a world-class cross-country skier. So there's no doubt that they both were genetically gifted. But I also think that siblings uh, also socially want to distinguish themselves with, from one another, you know? So Kelsey uh, took the Ivy League college route, right? And she saw herself more as an intellectual, um, not so much purely as an athlete. And, you know, a lot of this ends up not just being the genetics, but it just it ends up being kind of what you choose to do with that. Right. And the personal identity that you want to craft for yourself. Um, that being said, you know, genetics don't always transfer. Right. And there are maybe different genetic components that, you know, are better suited than others. I'll give you a story about um, Dan Martin. Right. Do you know who uh, Dan Martin's parents were? Yeah. They're, they're part of the Roach crew. Right. Well, part of the Roach crew, but his uncle was. You know, Stephen Roach, who, winner of the Tour de France, the Giro d'Italia, the World Championship, all in one year. And uh, Stephen Roach actually had a son also, right? Um, but when we were trying to evaluate who to hire, we ended up deciding to go with Dan, the nephew, and not necessarily the son. It was a guess. It wasn't really based on... on it was based on one factor and we didn't know if it was, was true or not, but the factor was that mitochondrial DNA, for example, is only maternal. Right. And so, you know, you're not really looking at, if you wanted to get Stephen Roach's mitochondria, you had to look at Stephen Roach's sister, right. Who right. was Dan's mother. Right. right. So there are some funky factors here. And while I don't know if that was, necessarily why Dan, you know, ended up, you know, having maybe more success. Who knows, right? But, yep. you know, this is a case where it's not necessarily directly about lineage. Well, that's why Taylor had the advantage of, of the mom's mitochondria, the dad's fast twitch, and he just had an unbelievable ability to do pretty much everything. Have you seen an athlete with more of a more of diverse, you know, skill set than Taylor Finney? Um, you know, I think that he was right in the middle, right? He had a lot of the great qualities of his mom and of his dad. We should joke that if his dad was fast twitch and Connie was slow twitch, that Taylor was all twitch, right? <laughs> that being said, you know, he was also maybe disadvantaged by his total size and that hurt him on the climbs, etc. Uh, but in terms of, yeah, just like that, 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 that hour time trial power, holy cow. I mean... It was like, it was freaky, right? And people don't understand. He could also sprint over 1,700 watts. I mean, he also had an incredible yeah. high-end sprint. That's right. And hold 400 watts for an hour. Yeah. Right? I mean, to have both of those things is, is pretty amazing. But I think Vanderpool is another example of really good genetics, right? Um, his Audrey and, and, of course, you know, Raymond Poulidor as, as, as his grandfather. He's just, but, but genetics, you know, I want to, I think it's important to let people know that that it's not just the genetics, it's the mindset as well. And I think it's the commitment as well. And it's what, like you said, you get supported as a youngster doing, and you start to feel like um, there has to be enough passion there. There has to be enough 
um, competitive nature in you because all the genetics in the world, if you just don't have that other element, this X factor, um, I think it's very difficult to be successful. And it's also yeah. a lot of pressure. Yeah. yeah. And, and that kind of begs this other maybe question about um, how good can I get and pursuing that uh, idea of being better. Do you actually enjoy it? Right. right. Are you having a good time? Right. Do you actually like the process of trying to figure out how you might be able to improve? Do you actually enjoy, say, being on the bicycle, et cetera? And I know a lot of athletes who begin to lose the fun and begin to lose the passion for it when they become professionals. You know, going back to Taylor, one of the things that really inspires me is that now that he is not a professional, I think that he's more in love with riding his bicycle and kind of exploring who he is through the bike than any other time in his life. And I, I don't know this for a fact and, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but Ted King is an example of a person that once he stopped the pressure of the, the pro tour, I actually think he became a better bike rider. And I think, yeah, potentially. I think he is every bit as, I mean, I see the things that he puts on Strava. I see the power outputs that he holds. They're unbelievable. I mean, he is an unbelievable bike racer. And I think, eliminating some of that stress from the pro tour has allowed him to become even better, which I think is, 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 is kind of, kind of consistent with what you just talked about with Taylor. Yeah, no, no doubt. No doubt. I think that you're, you're, you're really correct there, right? He continued to become a better athlete. And when you subtract a lot of the travel, a lot of the stress, a lot of the pressure, a lot of the basic domestic work that you might have to do, and you really get to focus on yourself, not on a professional cycling team, uh, I've seen a lot of athletes improve quite a bit once they you know, change direction. So, you know, so much of this is about expectation and so much about uh, good is what our expectation of good is. Right? Absolutely. And is good just crossing the line first? Is good holding a higher power output? Is good being healthier? Um, you know, is good beating your 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 buddies on the weekend? Right. So I guess this begs uh, you know the question of what type of cyclist do you want to be? Right. Yep. And and just to to kind of close out the professional cyclist, and we'll kind of get into some other things. I think at a certain level, um, when a person comes in here and they're a beginner they have unbelievable ability to grow and their, their runway is long and there's tons and tons of potential there. If you come in and you have been racing your bicycle for 30 years, you've been training properly, you're doing everything you can, you have the best technique, you have, the, you have a lot of things going for you. When those people want to make changes, they have to almost risk getting worse yeah. for the thought and the potential to get better. And that's a challenging place to be in because you have to have a lot of confidence and a lot of passion to be able to risk going backwards to potentially go forward. And I yeah. think that's, that's one of the tougher positions, but that's a very, 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 very small amount of the population. Yeah. You know, I mean, if you want to bring basic training theory into this, right. You know, I often talk about training, like popping a bag of Jiffy, right. It's popping this bag of popcorn. And you never really know how many kernels are in the bag when you first start out. But if you start with a fresh bag, if you start with a beginner and you throw it in the microwave, what you'll notice is you get a lot of popping early on. And then you'll start to 
hear that kind of plateau, the frequency of popping goes down and there's you maybe have to shake the bag, right? And do other things to get those last kernels to pop. And then, you know, if you keep on going too far, if you keep the heat on, you get what I call the stench of failure, right? And you start to you start to burn the popcorn. And it takes a long time to be able to recover from that. And so we're always trying for every individual to optimize their own genetic potential. We always see that for beginners, there is an initial big increase, and then there's a lot of nuance that follows after that. And you know, performance may not be about how much popcorn you, you put on the table, but what bowl you put it in, right? And how it's presented and how it looks. That's a perfect segue into the next piece, because I think the type of athlete, the type of endurance athlete you want to be also um, is part of the question of how good can I get? If you want to be a criterium racer, for example, there's different levers to pull there. If you want to be a century rider, there's different levels, levels, levers to pull. Time trialing, triathlon, track racing, it all, all those elements um, I think have different runways based on who you are and your sports physiology. For example, for me, I have a much longer runway and I have a, I have a much higher ceiling when it comes to criterion racing, because that's what my physiology is built for. Um, yeah, that on off that surge recover, surge recover. Right. So if I pick that sport, which bike handling is a key tactics is a key. The surging is a key. I have a much higher ceiling than if I choose climbing, for example. And part of that is my body composition. Your body composition plays a big role with how good you can get at certain things. For example, track racing versus climbing, different body compositions, different runways. Yeah. Yeah. RV, you know, I realized a long time ago, and maybe this is something that you brought out in me. I realized that I was better at being Chinese than being Italian. (laughs) You're a great (laughs) Italian. Are you kidding me? Yeah, yeah, actually, I'm not Italian. a bad Italian. I'm not a bad Italian, right? You can cook, you can converse, you love family, all the things <laughs> that Italians have, you have, I promise you that. All right, maybe we're all the same thing. But the point is, is that I think that in order to figure this out, you need to try a lot of things. And there is no better advantage in terms of exploring how good you can be at something than to be able to try a lot of different things over the course of your athletic career. And obviously this can be difficult, right? Because socioeconomic status, finances, money, your opportunities your parents give you or that you're able to give yourself might be bottlenecks to how many different things you can try in order to find what you're best suited for, right? Like maybe I'm actually best suited for synchronized swimming, but I've never done it, RV. And so I just don't know if I could be world-class. This is true. And, and when people come into your lab and you test them based on their physiology, based on their body type, based on their past history, I think letting them know that since we have a lot of experience and understanding of the type of athletes that tend to do best in different types of events to help try to steer them in a direction based on what their body is made to do. But unfortunately, sometimes that's not always the case. You have that's people right. that are very focused on a certain a certain area of sport, and you have to accommodate their training as well as their adaptations to that because that's really what they're passionate about and what they want to do. And let's talk yeah. about some of those physiological factors that really 
kind of control our, our genetics or that our genetics kind of control to some degree. And, and I'd like you to talk about the big three. And I think this is something that we, we've talked about a lot. The three most important components on the genetic scale are. Yeah. You know, and here's the thing about laboratory testing, right? And this is where I'll give the caveat that the limitation of physiological testing is that these are dyno tests, right? You're really trying to see how much power uh, the engine has for how long. And there are kind of three components of looking at that. One is what the top end ceiling is, like what is the peak horsepower? That might be VO2 max, right? The next is a uh, component of that engine would be what can that engine rev at for a long period of time? And that might be lactate threshold, right? Yep. And that's some percentage of your VO2 max. Hopefully, if you're really talented, uh, you might be able to do that at a high percentage of your VO2 max. So like the best case scenario is that you have huge VO2, but your LT is also a high percentage of that VO2. But what you often see... The rules of 85, right? 85 VO2 max, 85% of VO2 max is your lactic threshold, right? Yeah, but you almost never see that, right? Right, You often see like guys with low VO2 at 90% and then guys with high VO2 like at 70%, right? Um, so it's miss, miss and match. And then the last component is what, you know, back to the car analogy would be like your MPGs miles per gallon, right? And this is your economy. This is how efficient you are for burning a hundred calories. How many of those calories can you actually, you know, convert to useful work? Most people are only like 20, 21% gross mechanically efficient. So for every hundred calories you burn, only 21 is getting, you know, to the drivetrain. If you're up, you know, like a pro tour athlete at 25, 26%, holy cow, is that a big difference? And what's essentially happening is that instead of producing an excess of heat, you're producing more power. And if you are producing more power and less heat, that also takes off the cardiovascular strain of having to thermoregulate, which can also be a bottleneck, right? So it's VO2, it's lactate threshold, and it's economy. You know, this doesn't necessarily tell you, you know, what what kind of car you're putting that engine in, right? right. And you know, you put you put that big engine in a minivan, it's gonna be it's gonna ride very different than if you put that in a in a in a in a little little sports car. Yeah, in a moped. You put that in a moped, it's look out. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, and I think that those three elements, right? That's that people really I think it's pretty pretty standard that people want to maximize their VO2 max. They want to maximize their lactic threshold. And obviously, they want to be as economical as possible. Um, yeah. But there's obviously um, conditions um, and maximums and, and, and tolerances that our bodies, each individual body can handle. You know, yeah. as from a trainability perspective, Alan, and I know there's a lot of research on this, um, that is really what, what comes down to someone's trainability, how much yeah. they can handle. How much yeah. work? I mean, we, they've done studies and they've given, you know, 10 people the exact same training plan. And the difference of improvement is as much as 80%. That's and right. It com- and it comes down to those three elements. That's right. Besides getting tested, I mean, besides those elements, how trainable are those elements? And if you, let's just say you're in the middle of all three, which one do you focus on? Yeah, you know, it, it's kind of like zero to hero, right? Uh, some people actually... Uh, fortunately or unfortunately, don't show a lot of training response with those variables. It doesn't mean that they don't get better or faster. It's just that those parameters don't seem to change all that much. 
other folks, you know, the more load, the more load, the more load, you know, the better they get. And it's also interesting because I, I think nature has this funny way of, of, of trying to reckon some level of justice because some people who are really good off the couch, they don't continue to get better. Right. And other people who are really bad off the couch, they steadily get better and better and better and better. So time in, you know, can, can, can have a big impact. You know, the other reckoning here, when we talk about these three factors, you know, VO2, lactate threshold economy is that sometimes, you know, the adage of, well, pick two is, you know, pretty relevant here. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's like, you know, you want beauty? Do you want, do you, do you want smarts or do you want like, you know, whatever other factor? And it's like, can we, can we, can we have it all? And the answer is is usually no. Yep. Usually no. And one of the things that we've tried to do, um, here is, is, is try to isolate some of those variables a little bit through metabolic testing and figure out those percentages that we just talked about. Because oftentimes, I think there's more room in people's VO2 and lactic threshold and economy than, than the sports world gives us credit for. And, and oftentimes, yeah. I always am I'm a believer that so much can be, so much can be improved if you can find the right levers and it's not always this linear process. Sometimes you you work and you work and you work and you don't see a lot. Then all of a sudden you have these breakthroughs in performance. You have these breakthroughs in power output and it takes a lot of passion to, to, to kind of hang in there when you feel like you're not improving much. But I think ultimately there is more room than people think in that process. And I think Nobody really gets there. No one maxes out their VO2 max or lactic threshold in their economy. Um, right. it, it takes a long time to do that, right? It takes a right. really many, many years of many, many hours. So I, I always get nervous when, when, when I read these articles about, you know, your VO2 is fixed, your lactic threshold is fixed, you're not going to improve much. Um, because I was told when I was a professional cyclist that you're only going to get so good. And they yeah. may be right from a physiological perspective, but I learned to tolerate Blood lag. I mean, yeah. my VO2 max supposedly didn't change, but I, yeah. my three-hour power sure did. Yeah. I got a lot better for my three-hour, my three-minute power, I'm sorry. My three-minute power just got better and better, even yeah. though my VO2 max didn't change that yeah. much because I learned to yeah. tolerate more blood lactate. I learned to suffer. There's yeah. a suffer score that I think has so much tolerance to it and that yeah. people need to believe that there's room. That's right. RV, you know, there's a neurotransmitter called substance P. And it's released by what are called three, four afferents. Uh, so when you're experiencing pain, like that deep muscular pain, you release this neurotransmitter and you're like, oh my God, this hurts. And I think of you as a guy who persisted for so long that you basically wrung all the substance P out of your fucking nerve endings. For so, sure. Right? And like, yes. you, just, you, just, you just became numb to it, right? I did. And I, and it's funny because we can look at these numbers and these people have the same VO2 max, but if they can p- produce more power, it's got to come from somewhere. And I think it's from their ability to, to, to just take on damage at a higher level. And, it's, and, I, and I, I like when that happens. I always like when athletes outperform their, their, their genetics or their, or their scientific markers. And I think- Well, yeah. Yeah, this is also where you come back to the distinction between science versus practice, 
right? And there is a big distinction between science versus practice. Science is nothing more than a way to solve problems, and it's a way to gather evidence, you know, to make certain assertions um, about the norm or the average, right? And I think one difficulty with science is that science is always about what is average, on average, on average this, on average that. But the nature of practice is is that it's never about the average. It's about embracing your individual variability, right? And respecting the fact that you just don't know where you sit on that bell-shaped curve. More importantly, I think that uh, sometimes science gives us a picture of what the bell shape looks like when, in fact, we may not actually be seeing the real picture. For example, average body temperature is 37.5 degrees Celsius. But if your head is in a block of ice and your feet are under fire, you know, you might be average body temperature, but half of your body is frozen and the you're other half trouble. is on fire. Right. You're in big trouble, even though your average is okay. I hear you. Yeah. Yeah. That is a good point. That's a good one. Um, but, you know, let's, let's talk about this, a couple more of these X factor pieces. We talked sure. about um, toughness, right? I think that's one that, that's, that the scientists have a tough time measuring. Um, but then there's this element of luck, right? Injury prevention and crashes and different things that's like right. that that can interrupt right. um, the process as well. There's, there's luck and injury and durability components that, yeah. that play a role. I mean, yeah. No doubt every successful athlete I've ever worked with is also a lucky athlete. They're lucky. No doubt that every any successful person, whether it be in business, sport, or life, is a lucky person. And I think that there's some actually real positive gratitude and um, you know, good that comes from acknowledging how lucky we are. Right. And, you know, when the chips are down, I have found that if I just lie to athletes or if I get them to lie to themselves about how lucky they are, they feel better and they do better. Right. That, so if, if, you, if, if, if you are, you know, having a difficulty with your mental toughness, rather than berate yourself, just tell yourself that you're lucky and you'll find that ironically, it's easier to be tough. Absolutely. And I think what, what also gets um, undervalued as it relates to how good someone can get is really the, the approach they take mentally to a problem. Um, you know, I think how smart somebody approaches their training, the approaches their recovery, but also ingenuity, Greg LeMond, 2008, Graham O'Brien. Let's talk about Graham O'Brien. And here's a guy that's talented, but not crazy talented, but he used his brain and he found a way to take himself to a higher level. Yeah, no doubt he was talented. But in the schema of world tour cycling, he was average talented. So he was... Uh, definitely not a donkey. He was for sure a racehorse, right? But was he the fastest racehorse? No. And when you look at the aerodynamic gains developed by the different positions, you know, his most optimized position was probably an 80 watt advantage over his competitors of the day. His least optimized position was still probably about 20 or 30 watts better than the best competitors of his day. So yeah, he was a racehorse, but man, he was a smart racehorse. Uh, I think that the you know, word that I would use is not necessarily ingenuity, maybe not even smart or intelligent, but more than anything, athletes like Graham O'Brien and others who continue to use their minds to get better are what I call curious athletes, right? They're super interested. They're super curious. They're always asking questions. And it's that 
intellectual curiosity that can, I think, drive a lot of great physical performance. Yeah, and I think staying curious, being curious, taking some risks is always a component that you're going to find in terms of how good can I get. Risk plays a role there. Curiosity right. plays a role there. And I think yeah. people like Graham O'Brien, even, even uh, granted, Greg Lamond was a genetic, he was incredible, right? Super high VO2 max. But the fact of the matter is when he threw those arrow bars on, it took his performance to an absolute another level. And it yeah. was ingenuity. It was curiosity. It was risk that allowed yeah. him to beat Fignon by eight seconds at the Tour de France. That's right. That's and right. And I think people need to maintain that mindset of there's That's other right. ways to skin a cat. There's other ways to be, to, to, to get better. It's not just VO2 max. It's not just economy. There's other elements. Yeah. And you know, an important point to that uh, RV is that uh, sometimes we get lucky by being unlucky because the best athletes that I have seen with that regard definitely had it tough when they were younger. They didn't have it easy. They didn't necessarily have the privilege or the socioeconomic status to get into the sport easily. It was something that they fell in love with and they just persisted. And it was the fact that it was hard and not easy that made them so freaking resilient. You know, a good example of that is Freddie Rodriguez. I grew up racing with him as a kid. And a lot of the races we would he would he would show up to, he would show up to without a bicycle because you know, his, his parents couldn't always afford to get him the right equipment. And so he would hang out, borrow a bicycle from someone who would finish racing and then race right on borrowed bicycles. And that was always something that was so impressive because he didn't let what you would think would be the most important factor to be a bike racer, having a bicycle stop you from being a bike racer. (laughs) That's, That's definitely an extreme example. Um, for yeah. sure. Um, how good can I get? You know, Freddie Rodriguez blew that up because what I would say is the more people you have around you that support yeah. your endeavor, the better chance you have of getting good. Um, I think the, the, the people that surround you play a huge role in how good can I get. And if you have a spouse or a sibling or a person in your life that can't stand when you go out and ride your bike, just that mental Oof. stress and strain uh, on you on yeah. a regular basis is going to limit your, your ability and your, 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 your runway for sure. Well, you know, I'll tell you a story, Robbie. I was really lucky as some, um, you know, just immigrant Asian kid living in Los Angeles, being able to get into the sport of cycling because of a bunch of, you know, adult volunteers who I did not know, you know, uh, guys who would show up on a Tuesday night to hold practice time trials for the juniors who would just show up, you know, and uh, the kind of trust within the cycling community to let your kid just show up to these different, you know, unsanctioned events or group rides. I you used to, you know, go to on group rides, uh, uh, across Southern California. And, you know, I was in part raised by my parents. I was also in part raised by these, you know, older dudes yelling at me, you know, on every group ride that I ever showed up to as a kid, you know, and they were just as influential in terms of supporters and mentors. And, you know, eventually you develop those friendships and those relationships and that trust where, you know, you'd have, you know, the master's guys driving you to the bike races every weekend, right? And helping you out with extra equipment and all that sort of stuff. So I would also say that, you know, if you've experienced anything positive in the sport, volunteer, 
right? Get out there and help others, uh, you know, explore how good they can get. And that's, and that's, I think a huge component of, of, of how far, how good can you get? I think if you have people, like you said, that you're enjoying the time with, that you're that, that around you are happy and excited and training hard, a rising tide lifts all boats. I think surrounding right. yourself with those people and then also contributing to their success, oftentimes teaching somebody else how to do something properly really reinforces doing it properly yourself. I mean, I That's became right. a better athlete when I became a coach. I think That's I raised right. my level because I was teaching others the importance of recovery. I was teaching others the importance of nutrition and all these elements that I didn't pay that much attention to when I was a racer. I should have paid more. I paid a lot more attention to once I started coaching people and it lifted my ability significantly when I started that process. And I, although I started coaching athletes when I was still a bike racer, I think I became a much better bike racer, even though maybe physically as I was getting into my thirties, I was losing a little bit of my uh, natural abilities a little bit. I was raising up those other elements, which, which, which ultimately made me a better bike racer, even though my VO two might've been dropping slightly. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Because, you know, you might not have been able to hit the piano keys as hard as you got older, but you sure did play the piano a lot better. Exactly. For sure. Um, Okay, I think we covered down on a lot of elements, right? We talk, covered down on the past. We covered down on the type of cyclist that you want to be, the physiological factors that, that are really important, you know, body composition, neuromuscular coordination, thermoregulation, economy, bone lengths, fiber typing, all that good stuff. And then I think we talked a lot about these X-factor pieces, passion, tenacity, toughness, how much time you have to train. I mean, obviously, that's a big one, right? The more time you have generally, generally now, as, as long yeah. as they can recover. You know. As you go through that list, Robbie, I think what's really important for people to realize is that pick any one and ask yourself, can I get better at that, right? Pick any one. Can I get better at my recovery and my sleep? Can I just go to bed earlier? Will that make me better? Hell yeah, it will make you better because if you're just only ever competing against yourself, all things being equal, the version of yourself that gets more sleep is always going to beat the version of yourself that's sleep deprived. Right? Absolutely. And at the end of the day, I think that when we talk about community, I think we talk about why we're in it. We're in it to compete against ourselves and have community with others, not necessarily to be, quote unquote, uh, the world champion. Right. And I, and I think, you know, in some, there are so many areas for us to improve that the answer to the question, how good can I get? It's fairly endless. When you think about all the elements that we talked about today, all the pieces of the puzzle that really make um, performance. And I think what you said was the best is just be really happy with getting better and keep trying to figure out where those rate rate limiting factors lie and ultimately how you can improve on those rate limiting factors without, with, with enhancing your balance of life, with enhancing the relationships, with enhancing the amount of fun that you're having getting better at endurance sports. Because sometimes it's real easy to over-rotate. And I will promise you, once you do, the end is near for improvement. Because That's right. if you're not enjoying the process and you're not enhancing your overall happiness, I think the um, the finish line is closer than you think as it relates to improvement. So yeah. And this is what I learned from your Italian family, especially your wife, Laurie, is that the biggest bottleneck tends to be around the question or the statement halt, right? Are you hungry? Are you angry? Are you lonely? Are you tired? 
If you're hungry, time for that bolognese. If you're angry, let's talk it out. If you're lonely, you know, cuddle puddle with those puppies. Um, call a friend. If you're tired, yeah, maybe it's time to just go to bed, right? Absolutely. And sometimes it doesn't get, uh, you know, more complicated than that. Well, Alan, thank you so much. Hopefully we, sh- we shed some light on, on the process of how good can you get. It's never an easy answer, as, as I mean, we talked about for 45 minutes. And I don't know if, if, if we answered your question about how good you can get, but I will tell you, we shed some light on the process. And that's, I think, the most important thing. So, um, Dr. Alan Lim, thank you for this big one. I put a huge quarter in today. I appreciate your expertise. I look forward to having you on the Velocity Podcast again in the future. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much, Robbie. And I'll give you a nod again as a great coach. I think that what makes you a great coach is not only do you believe in people, but you believe in process. And maybe that's really the only way that we can ever get better. You got to believe in yourself. We got to believe in each other and we got to believe in the process. So sometimes you got to trust the struggle. Thank you very much, Alan. I appreciate that. Cheers. Cheers.